0: Vinepairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino.
1: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal.
0: And this is the Vinepair Podcast. Zach, how's it going? How do I shake these uh how do I shake these intros up a little bit more? Zach, what's going on? I feel like Adam brings this uh wonderful energy that I just I just don't have.
1: Yeah, it's okay. well <laughs> he's maybe more highly caffeinated at this point in the day than you are. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't feel like we talk a lot about your caffeination regimen, <laughs> such as it may or may not be. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's fine. There's a little bit of, uh, consistency from episode to episode isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm doing well. You know, I've had some interesting things to drink, which I'm going to talk about now. I think, gosh, there are a few things that have been, that have stood out to me. One is a local sea salt vodka called Ron. Yeah, it's weird. It's like salty vodka, which, you know, cool, for sure. comes from a, um, or was part of a cocktail at a cocktail bar that i've referenced on the pod a few times roquette uh which was their uh amos martini named for the famed uh british writer who didn't exclusively write about spirits but he did write about spirits a fair bit uh kingsley amos and it's a kind of like a it's a little bit of everything drink um it's it's this round vodka uh, monkey 47 gin some brandy manzanilla sherry Uh, lemongrass, kefir lime, like there's a lot going on, even though it looks and mostly kind of tastes like a classic martini, just with some slightly different notes. Um, so it was really fun, a cool bottle, like interesting drink for sure. A couple of other things that stood out to me, um, was out at, uh, went to, uh, there's a pizza place, uh, called Windy City Pie that shockingly specializes in, uh, Chicago style deep dish pizza. Had a mm-hmm. cocktail. It was a sort of a rhubarb daiquiri, as noted on previous episodes. I've been in a bit of a daiquiri phase, so that was kind of fun. Uh, and then I think the last thing that was really interesting to me was this: there's a local, I guess it's a, it's a whiskey blender, not a distillery a blender, and a barreler, if that's the way you describe someone who like, you <laughs> know, a, a company that takes in barrels and ages them further, um, yeah. called Doc Swinson's. And this one uh, in particular that I thought was quite interesting was a a mix of rye whiskey and then like a little bit of peated scotch. So kind of this like smoky rye whiskey deal. Interesting. I think their products are like kind of, it's an interesting concept for a brand. I mean, the thing that it reminded me of, I don't know if you're familiar, Joanna, maybe some of our listeners are also familiar with uh, Compass Box, which is a Scottish blending house that kind of um, is attempted to bring sort of a little more dynamism to blended whisk to blended scotch um which i think sometimes is a category that kind of gets either it's either johnny walker which can obviously be very very premium or it's kind of like seen as kind of cheap um and not Mm -hmm. necessarily that exciting and i think doc swinson's which is the local distiller local blender has tried to kind of i think i I don't know if consciously or not but I i see a lot of similarities in this attempt to kind of create these products that you probably couldn't get out of an individual distillery through this act of blending, including sometimes blending different spirits together, different whiskeys together. But I think the one downside to it in my eyes, and and this isn't even necessarily an outright criticism, just a note, is like they they come across as very much finished products. So they're really good if you like them exactly as is. They're not something I would consider using as like a cocktail ingredient because they kind of are almost like a finished drink unto themselves, which, you know, Mm -hmm. good or bad, depending on what you prefer.
0: Nice. That sounds good.
1: Yeah. How about you? What have you been drinking?
0: Uh so this past weekend, Evan and I went to a very lovely dinner to celebrate our anniversary, but also mm. his tenth anniversary of living in New York City. There you which go. Which is, yeah, very um, a big deal for him and for us. And um, and so we we went to dinner and had some nice cocktails. I had a, a really delicious. What I thought was going to be a take on um a, a paper plane, but actually wasn't it was kind of more more like a manhattan that was really good and evan had a (laughs) evan had a 55 um espresso martini (laughs) and he said i could talk about it on the show and to make fun of him because i yeah i he was like really you know battling whether or not he should order it. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I didn't really share my input, but he did. And um, it tasted just like a normal espresso martini. It had this like special vodka in it. Shoot, I can't remember the name. But anyway, it was called the Bruce Wayne. And uh, I just, yeah, I don't know. Is he a sucker for ordering it? When when, uh, the server came over, she asked him how it was because no one's ever ordered it before. I died. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah.
1: I, I think that... that. Uh, did you taste it? I did. You did. You said it tasted yeah. just like in a regular espresso martini.
0: Yeah, yeah, it did.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. that does feel like... God, I, I feel bad saying this, but it feels a little bit like chump bait. Like, yeah. Like, sure, yeah, you want to pay 55 bucks for a drink that everyone else is paying like 17 for? Why not? Have fun. <laughs>
0: yeah. I don't know. I just feel like it's really hard to justify that unless... It has something really, I, I, it's from the reserve section. So again, I'm sure some of the ingredients are um, pricier, but yeah, it, it was a uh, kind of stuff. We also had a really delicious bottle of wine um, from the Jura uh, called Domaine de Pelican. Um, oh yeah. You know it? i uh, a yeah. It was a blend of Pinot Noir, Trousseau, and Pulsard, and um, that was really delicious um, haven't done like a bottle of wine in a in a while.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, that was
0: really good. Cool, yeah,
1: okay. so
0: speaking of wine,
1: yeah, speaking of wine, <laughs> I, I sort of <laughs> sh- sort of like gang pressed you into this topic a little bit today, um because the sort of peg for it in my eyes was news that came out last week that San Michelle Wine Estates, which is the uh, wine company based here in the Seattle area. That um, owns Chateau Saint Michel most famously and a few other brands, or at least uh, controls a few other brands, is drastically cutting its, uh, planning to drastically reduce the amount, essentially the amount of grape it purchases um, from growers here in Washington over the next five years. It's intending to cut by about 40%. Right. And there's been some things that have been written about this and talked about this. And it's been talked about in terms of a lot about what the impact will be on growers, which obviously is pretty and on the Washington wine industry more broadly. And both are very significant. And I don't want to shortchange them. But I also don't want to spend a lot of time talking about them. Because I think it's in a way kind of pretty obvious what the story is like, it is very bad for growers who have counted on St. Michelle to purchase a good chunk of if not almost all of their fruit over the last however many years. And being told that that won't happen, it's not easy to turn around and just kind of find a new audience yeah, for your wine, or for your grapes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not impossible, but I think what you're going to see is some contraction of grape growing in the state uh, over at least over the next, you know, five to 10 years. Um, in terms of, you know, maybe some vineyards get pulled out. Maybe some vineyards are, um, you know, not uh, kind of Harvested. grown to full yield or whatever, you know, there's going to be some triaging. And so, you know, that part of it is what, I mean, it's unfortunate, but it is whatever. I think the thing that's more interesting for us to talk about, and I'm curious your thoughts, is what I think this says about the future of the segment of the wine industry that is, let's say, $10 or so and under. And that's where a lot, mm-hmm. or even maybe 12 and under, that's where a lot of the San Michelle wine, wine Estates wines were Priced not so much at the very very uh, lowest end of the market, you know, not much under five dollars, but a lot between eight and twelve ish dollars. A lot of volume and just a lot of product at that price point. Yeah, and you know, there's been a lot of back and forth in in conversation in the wine industry about what is happening to that market. And to me, this is one of the most drastic and obvious signals that some of the big companies just do not believe that this market, this part of the market, is is going to, it, they think it's going to continue to shrink.
0: Well, I have, I have a question for you before we touch on that. So they're cutting, you know, cutting by 40% or they're whatever, taking in 40% less fruit. Are they getting it from somewhere else or is it because the
1: demand isn't there? I think the intention is to dramatically reduce their production. I mean, okay. a, an important piece of the story is that um, St. Michel Wine Estates was is now owned by essentially a venture capital firm. Right. and there's been a lot under the surface with them that has been people have been kind of like curious about what exactly they're doing because mm-hmm. you have both the elements of attempts to perhaps reduce production maybe to maybe to get in line with what they perceive demand to be or demand to be in the future and also a little bit about kind of where without getting kind of too into the specific details of how their business, how St. Michel Wine Estates has traditionally operated. It has always been a little bit of an, of a mix of some very inexpensive grocery store type wine and also some higher end products that they've attempted to kind of, um, you know, the sort of, they have this series of, of brands um, called their like string of pearls that they made some acquisitions in California and in uh, Oregon. They have some Mm -hmm. close ties with some wineries in uh, Italy and France attempting to kind of, and Germany trying to leverage some of that market presence here in the U.S. into kind of creating more demand for those products. And that has been always a little bit of a weird sort of, I mean, they're far from alone. Many of the large wine companies these days have a range of products all the way from, you know, the very, very low end to the very high end. It, yeah. You kind of do want to diversify across wine. But I do think that you're seeing this pullback is mostly, I think, going to be concentrated in the, the lower price point wines matching perhaps slackening demand and a sort of broader question of like, does the, do the new owners of San Michel Wine Estates really see the future for the company as being similar to the past? Like one thing that San Michelle has long been known for is having like a large physical presence in Woodenville outside of Seattle. They have a large production facility there. They have a large estate there they have a large you know they, they do events and concerts mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff and they've the the new owners have been trying to sell that property for quite some time without going too far inside the thing like that's a very difficult proposition because it's kind of like what else could you do with it besides what they're doing with it and yeah. no one else in washington has the heft to kind of swing what they swing but you know you can see the vision from the new ownership of like we want to cut production, we want to shift production to eastern Washington where it's cheaper, it's closer to the grapes, we don't have to transport them across the mountains like, we can cut costs and, and, you know, be more potentially more profitable, even if on a Mm -hmm. smaller scale, and so, you know uh, but I think it, it does again, get back into this question of kind of like why do you have any idea do you have any guesses or thoughts about why this part of the market is so dramatically declining to just put some numbers on it really quick um from the most recent uh Silicon Valley Bank state of the wine industry report which obviously came out at the beginning of this year so we'll see as we get to the end of the year what new figures they have but basically you're seeing in wine priced at uh, essentially like under $5, you're seeing almost 10% decline in sales, you're seeing similar declines in wine between like $4.50 and $8, um, even bigger decline, 8 to $11, and smaller decline, but still noticeable decline, 11 to 15 essentially. So basically, everything 15 and under is shrinking in terms of um, demand, some Upwards of 10%. Some like the highest end of that is was like down three and a half percent. But like obviously, this is happening, but but kind of like why?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a few, I'm sure there are a few factors that kind of uh play into this. One is that you know, when you think of I don't know, I'm sure people have different opinions about this, but when you think of when you're first uh become of age and first starting to drink, um, those cheaper wines better value wines whatever budget wines are kind of where you like entry level right and so when you have we've talked about this a number of times but like younger generations who are becoming of age um, not really finding wine um, or not really opting for wine um, as their beverage of choice or really kind of getting into the category and and then you have this other you know level of wine enthusiast who kind of knows better than to drink that type of wine, which isn't to say that that wine is bad, but are choosing to spend more money on better quality wines, whatever, just call it that. Sure. I think, I think another part of this equation is the fact that there is so much out there available for people to drink now. Yeah. Right, we just have this incredible selection like we've never had before. Um, that I would rather take my ten dollars and spend it on. I don't know what. What can you get for ten dollars these days?
1: A banana. I'm going to get
0: Sorry. a bunch of. <laughs> how much can a banana be? Um, yes. I'm going to get <laughs> four cans of Arizona hard iced tea. Yeah, or <laughs> uh, some hard seltzer, or you know something else and not spend it on a bottle of wine because that's what me and my friends like to drink. So I think that's that's where we could possibly see some of the this decline in that price range.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think wine has lost what had been an important sort of part of its market because of a few things. I think you're right. Absolutely. The alternative alcoholic beverage category, whether it's seltzers, whether it's other hard Beverages that didn't exist really previously, and I think honestly, also the sort of more mainstreaming and normalizing of spirits consumption, yeah, I think is a, another part of this. Because I think for I think a lot of these wines, I mean, there are definitely people of all ages who were and remain steadfastly loyal to you know inexpensive wine that either specific brands or just the whole they don't want to pay more than ten or twelve dollars for a bottle of wine because that's what they yeah. think it should cost, and mm-hmm. that's totally those people are still there. Obviously, none of these wines, none of this. You know, categories in the market are disappearing entirely. They're just shrinking. And I think part of it is that for a lot of people, in- inexpensive wine was your kind of one wine, one beverage alcohol alternative to cheap beer that was readily available. That was, if you didn't like cheap beer, which lots of people don't. Yeah. And now there just are a lot of other options. And it's quite possible that for whether it's a younger set, which Grew, has grown up more around things like hard seltzer and whatnot and, and sees those things as being totally, you know, normal things that they would just drink on a, on a regular basis in the same way that someone might, uh, you know, someone of our generation or older might have seen, you know, wine as being a kind of not if not if not an everyday drink, a more regular drink. I think there's that. Yeah. And I think the other piece is that then when people are maybe interested in wine or coming to wine, yeah, it's possible that they don't see the point in getting inexpensive wine. If they're going to drink wine, they want wine that's $15 or more. Like that, ju- They just see that as being where wine makes sense to them in a more, in a more, I don't know, it's not universal, but in a broader way than I think that, because like, it used to be that that price point was really a something of a barrier for a lot of people. And as the wine market has shrunk, I think it has shrunk more dramatically in that, portion, the below $15 portion, because it's harder to make a value proposition for those wines when compared to all the other beverage alcohol product that's out there in that price point.
0: Yeah. I mean, I also think that whether or not this is the case, and like you said, when people think of, you know, when they're thinking of buying wine, there is a perception that if it's less than $20 or less than $18 or whatever, that that, that it's not good quality. Yeah. And I think that probably affects affects it as well. And I'm sure that it's also like there are fewer wineries out there who are able to make wines for $15 and under.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And I think one an important thing to recognize, too, is that part of the story with St. Michelle Wine Estates might also be that just for them... The economics of those wines no longer made sense, even if yeah. there is demand. It could be the case that demand in some of these, in some of these wines is still there, but just the realities of, you know, if you're a person who is going to balk at, like, a dollar or two increase in the price of a bottle of wine is a lot more keenly felt when it's a $10 bottle going to 12 than yeah, when it's a $22 yeah. bottle going to 24. And that's obvious, but... I think it's a lot harder it makes the economics harder for a producer who is like hey you know we just can't make this you know Washington state Riesling and put it on the shelf at 9.99 anymore for a variety of reasons and so our what are our options well our options are either to like just you know whatever make less of it or and raise the price or I you know it's unclear exactly what they're going to do they haven't yeah. been particularly forthcoming about kind of what this means for their um for some of their kind of more core wine brands or or labels or whatever. But I also think that it is a, a reminder that like forever these products, the products in this part of the market in particular, have been low margin, high volume operations. Right. You know, the okay, way yeah. Charles Shaw was profitable was like they made a ton of it. And even if their profit per bottle was very low, they sold enough of they it. They sold to make enough.
0: Money. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But it doesn't take very much to kind of completely erode that profit margin. And then it doesn't matter how many bottles you're selling. If each one of them is not, a, is not generating any revenue, then like you're just kind of spinning your wheels or or worse. You might be losing money. And I think like, it's very interesting to see. I think we've seen some of the other big wine companies shuffling around some of these lower end brands, looking to do different things. I think we're going to see prices continue to rise because it's just so hard to make a bottle of wine, I mean, think about what goes into it, right? Like just the material just the raw materials like you know the the bottle and stuff have costs attached to them, hey, shipping yeah. them has costs attached to them. getting them onto a store shelf in you know whatever state uh, fifty states or whatever is very expensive or at least has a lot of cost. and you know it may also be the case that some of these companies are just like kind of where's the what's the point, like even if there is demand. I mean, in some way there is demand. Obviously, people want cheap wine, but the demand is not sufficient enough to kind of or the price point is no longer sufficient enough to make it make sense in some of these cases.
0: So I I guess, you know, as a Washington wine person, like Mm -hmm. how do you how do you feel about this?
1: I mean, it's, it's really hard to say. And and I have certainly spent some time since this news came out talking to some people that I know who are growers, producers, etc. And, and there's a lot, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of trepidation. It's not, no one feels good about this. Um, Even some people who might look at some of this as a potential opportunity, you know, some people who are looking to grow their production who might see a chance to get additional, you know, uh, acreage or grapes or whatever, at possibly even a discount price. But I think, You know, it's important to note, and and I do want to say this here, that, you know, in a lot of ways, Chateau Saint-Michel and Saint-Michel Wine Estates has has been a sort of a backstop for a lot of the industry here. You know, they've done a lot of support of the industry, helping kind of promote it uh, across the country and around the world in a variety of ways, and really kind of been a sort of a, like... Repository for, you know, when when there are you know bumper crops, they've they have the capacity to take in more fruit or have mm-hmm. had the capacity to take in more fruit, etc. So it's definitely uh, you know, there's been a lot of concern here. You know, the, the foundation has seemed a little unstable for a while. Um, this is the most clear evidence, I think, that you know, like I said, that the there's some real challenges ahead for San Michelle wine estates, and with that, the whole Washtenaw wine industry in certain ways. But I also think that there are You know, there is there is some optimism that the industry here has gotten big enough and diverse enough and self-sustaining enough that the, you know, even a decrease in production and a maybe diminished presence for Chateau Saint-Michel in Washington and in the national and international market isn't a death knell for the industry in the way that maybe 10 or 15 Mm -hmm. years ago, it might have felt much more existential.
0: Yeah, that's good.
1: Yes, it is. But, it, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's, it's scary. And especially for the growers that are heavily um, reliant on San Michelle, It's, you know, for some of them, it will be existential or nearly existential. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what to say about that, other than that's really unfortunate. And that, you know, we all know, I think you, you know, certainly you and I know, or our listeners know that um, farming of any kind is a really fraught, yeah. risky proposition. and it's that way, even in the best of times, and even with really, really dedicated, committed, you know, kind of fully bought in partners on the buying on the buyer side. But without that, it's even more so and, and you know, I, I know there's a lot being, you know, talked about and, and hopefully being done to at least give people who have, you know, fruit on the vine right now. I mean, we're recording this in, um, you know, mid August, people are you know, get, stuff is getting closer to harvest. We're getting mm-hmm. you know to this point in time where, like, there's very little capacity for a lot of these growers to turn around. And to be clear, it's not like San Michel is dropping 40% of its fruit contracts Immediately. for this year. Yeah, yeah. But they're dropping some for this year, and they're only going to continue to do that. And, again, it's like even if you can repurpose your land, either if you, you – know, maybe you can find other buyers for some of the fruit. Maybe over the years you can find other people who want to grow production. But, well, you know, like I said, a lot of people are going to have to rip out some amount of acreage. They're going to have to replant to, or they're going to have to replant to other varieties. They're going to have to replant to other crops. All that is expensive and time consuming, labor demand, you know, all that stuff. It will undeniably be a challenge for the Washington wine industry. I don't think in any way it's an insurmountable one, but a, but a real challenge.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting also to see. I mean, I feel like this isn't hasn't been something I've been particularly cognizant of like at the wine shop or anything, but to see if there are just, yeah, fewer, you know, inexpensive wine options out there.
1: I think what you're seeing too on that is not even, it's fewer options in that more is being funneled into what is currently successful. Um, You know, I think you're seeing, you know but you're seeing a lot of instability. I mean, like we've seen a lot of instability with treasury wine estates, like 19 yep. crimes even and stuff like that. You know, this this part of the market is struggling and how that shakes out is unclear because it's been such a like a volume backbone of the wine of the American wine industry, of the global wine industry really, and it's unclear to me at this point like whether there will be, you know, trends that revitalize this part of the market, whether, you know, people are or whether people just have lost some interest in an $8 bottle of wine. That could just be the case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Zach, I think this was a good chat. If you have thoughts, I don't know, about this news or about the inexpensive wine segment, please let us know podcast at vinepair.com. And uh, we will chat again on Friday.
2: Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vinepair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vinepair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now, through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So,